Well, good morning to you again. If you would turn in your Bible to the 18th chapter of Ezekiel. The 18th chapter of Ezekiel. Hold on for just a moment. As you're finding your way there, I want to say that the 18th chapter of Ezekiel is one that will spread out into at least two, possibly three sermons. Uh, if you'll recall, this is on the, the, the heels, so to speak, of a new covenant promise. If you remember at the, uh, at the tail end of chapter 17, that this, this day was promised when all the trees of the field would be bowed down before one mighty tree, looking forward to the day when the Lord Jesus, who would be the mighty and exalted Lord over all of heaven and earth, putting all things under himself, all these promises that Ezekiel's giving to a nation in rebellion against God, a nation that's proven their love for idolatry, and uh, as we'll discover this morning, a nation that is particularly good at making excuses. And so, we'll begin uh, at verse 1 in chapter 18. The word of Yahweh came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. And the soul who sins shall die. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And so we say, thanks be to God. Well, Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, in a sermon that I've titled, Sour Grapes and Edgy Sons. I also thought about calling it the Grapes of Wrath, but I felt like that was too on the nose. And so there's a word of a proverb in this text that people in Israel are repeating. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Let me just go ahead and translate that for you because it's going to be really critical for the whole rest of our sermon this morning. And that is basically our dads did a bunch of bad stuff and now we are paying for it. That's a, that's a very quick way to put it. So if you think about um, the, the reference, the word in Hebrew actually refers to a type of grape that's really, really small on the vine because it's not yet fully ripe. And so if you were to pluck it and eat it, it's going to be really, really sour and it's going to make your face do something like this. All right? Teeth set on edge. That's the idea right there. And so what they're saying, what, what there's this proverb floating about in Israel, just as much as you know, when we're sitting down to lunch this afternoon, you might be telling a story, and somebody might summarize your story as like, well, what goes around comes around, okay? That's an example of, a, of proverbial wisdom uh, that tends to float around a community like ours that's familiar to us. Uh, in every community, there's proverbial wisdom that floats around. Some of it's from the scriptures, right? Sometimes somebody might give a proverb, um, uh, such as, uh, just as iron sharpens iron, so one brother sharpens another, right? That's from the book of Proverbs. Or then some, someone else might say, uh, God helps those who help themselves, a sentiment that you will find nowhere in the scriptures, but seems to have taken on a kind of life of its own, particularly in the West. So the fathers have eaten sour grapes, 
and we're making the face. That's the idea, right? Our fathers did something, and now we're the ones who are suffering consequences. And I, I want to, as I was preparing the sermon, I couldn't help but think of the uh, study we did over Carl Truman's book some time ago, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, where we, we had a great deal to say about Sigmund Freud and his influence on culture and how psychotherapy has coated a lot of our conversations and just our general assumptions about people. And so one of Freud's contributions, and this is overstating and overgeneralizing, but one of Freud's contributions, at least in popular thought, is that all of your problems can probably be blamed on your parents, or at least in your past, or something that happened in your past. And so what's happening here is, well, in a sense, precisely that. Now, you, don't, you remember what's going on with Israel at this time. They're in rebellion against God, even under the threat of exile, which is becoming more and more real to them as Babylon is closing in. And so this is their complaint. The fathers, our, our, our dads have eaten sour grapes. Our teeth are set on edge. Now, what that proverb is referencing, if I can put it that way, is something that is true enough. Uh, it's something that we've talked about before, and that if you've been uh, a member of this church, uh, at least certainly during the ministry of Bob Vincent, you would have heard about a little thing called generational sin. This is spoken of in the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, this is the second commandment, likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And the reasoning? You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. In other words, you belong to me, you're mine. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He goes on to say, but those who love me and keep my commandments, uh, my, my steadfast love is, is theirs. We, we see this on display in a number of places throughout the Bible. Uh, for instance, you have King David, right, who, who sins terribly against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against the Lord. In fact, in Psalm 51, <coughs> against you only have I sinned. An amazing thing to say. <coughs> and then this leads to Excuse me. Uh, this, this leads to terrible things for David's household. Terrible things for his sons. He, he actually loses his son. And, but then again, as, as, as the line goes on, you, you start to see that, that this sin of David, very much like father, like sons, they're continuing to, uh, things are continuing to go bad. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm of those who believe that the book of Proverbs is King Solomon trying to talk his son out of his foolishness. The book of Proverbs actually is written to that end. And so you see this repeated in Proverbs, my son do this, my son live this way, my son walk in these ways. And if you read Solomon's history and his son, you understand why he was pleading with him not to go in the way that he did. We see this idea on display as well. In, in this, this general biblical principle that the virtues and the vices of parents tend to get passed on to their kids. It's a rather terrifying thing if you're a parent or if you ever want to become one. And it is, it's in part why we all have, we all have, you, if you think you're the exception here, you're, you're not. 
all of us have a particularly pronounced hatred for the sins or the sin patterns of our parents. Right? No, nobody, so, I, I, I want to qualify this a bit. It is often the case for lots of people that, that in your mind, uh, nobody that you know is a bigger sinner than mom and dad. Why? Because you see their sins in their hearts and then, Lord have mercy, you start to see them in yours. So you have this terrible situation where the sins that you have seen on display around you in the home are also to some extent in you. It's really frustrating to learn. I love you guys. It's really frustrating to learn. (laughs) And then insult added to injury is that as you get older, you're only greeted with more and more of a sense of just how deep it goes. So Israel's problem is not that they were confessing what I just told you. That's not their problem. Because as far as the biblical witness goes, that's true enough. That there tends to be this reality that children struggle and even suffer with and suffer against, to put it that way, the sins of their parents. It tends to be that the sin habits get passed on. So much so that in the early church, there was a debate about whether or not you get your soul from your parents. Like your soul itself is it a combo of mom and dad. Now, I, the Bible doesn't, I think, directly state yes or no on that. But uh, I, what I'm trying to say there is when we observe that, I, I say, fair enough that you would come to that conclusion, right? Fair enough that you would come to that conclusion given what you observe in families. So what Israel was saying, though, is different. What Israel was saying in this proverb is, our parents ate these nasty sour grapes, and there's a bad taste in our mouths now. They were saying, our parents rebelled against God. They were the sinners and the ones who acted on their sin. And so there's nothing we can really do about it, you know? We're, we're done for. We're cooked. We're, you know, judgment's coming. And so it's almost like, I mean, you remember for, eight, for 17 chapters now, God has been telling Ezekiel, my people are going to be judged for their sins. And God's people are saying, yeah, I guess so, you know, nothing we could have done to help it. This God is a little unreasonable after all, just crushing us because of what our parents did. But you see, the, the issue is that they were surrendering. If, if we go back to the, go back to the text, please. Um, What's happening in the proverb, notice something about the language. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children have eaten them too. Oh, wait, no, that's not what it says. The children didn't do any eating. The children didn't do any sinning, you see. The children didn't take any action. They're entirely passive in this. It's just kind of happened to us. Don't you feel sorry for us? Right? And so they were, the issue is they're, they're just surrendering to it. Our teeth are set on edge, nothing we can do about it, and we didn't do anything to, to earn this. Right? We call this fatalism. Theologians call this attitude toward God's work fatalism. What that means is, is God is sovereign, right, so far. And then you add to that, and nothing we can do about it, so life doesn't matter. Nothing we can do about it, so judgment isn't fair which is not at all predestination or election in any of those doctrines that we see in Scripture. Fatalism is different. Fatalism is like predestination for atheists. It's it's predestination with God of love removed from the picture is is what fatalism is, basically. And so there's this human impulse then that we see on display here 
It's in Israel's heart and it's in your heart and it's in mine. This impulse to blame others for our sin and excuse ourselves as at worst uh, passive collateral damage to the sins of others. We can trace this all the way back to the garden, can't we? Adam, when confronted with his sin, woman you put here with me, not my fault. Right? And then we get, and then again, generational sin. We get to Cain and Abel. Has it gotten any better? Am I my brother's keeper? You're looking for Abel? Maybe you should check with Abel. Haven't seen him. Right? Don't know what you're talking about. And it strikes me, though, that even just can we stop and consider what do you mean by repeating this proverb? I mean, so there's a rhetorical question there from the Lord Almighty addressing Israel. And again, when I, when I think about that, the way that verse is phrased, what I might have written is, uh, people say this and it's dumb. <laughs> people say this and it's ridiculous. Instead, the Lord is saying, why do you talk this way? Why, do you, why is your speech like this? And so, at least, the, the fact that it's framed that way, let me at least present you to think about this. The way we talk to each other about God and what He does and what kind of world we live in really matters, apparently. Because the Lord is saying, where do you get off using this proverb? Right? And so, then we should take really seriously, as I, I said at the start, Proverbs are always part of a community. We should take really seriously the kind of offhanded, cliched, proverbial talk that flows out of our mouths because apparently it has a much more powerful shaping influence than we realize. And so that's why, you know, maybe if you, you might have rolled your eyes earlier when I, when I said the thing about God helps those who help themselves. But no, like the proverbial wisdom that we consume really matters. Let me give you another example. No good deed goes unpunished, right? So you do that as after you've, you've done some kind of good deed, morally, whatever, and it, it comes back to you, but not in a good way, right? So, so you've, 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 you've put your own self at risk, you've, you've gone out and been charitable, and maybe the person you've tried to help snaps back at you. You know good deed goes unpunished, right? Or another example of the same kind of thing, well, Murphy's Law is certainly kicking in today, all right? Now, I don't know who Murphy is, but we don't worship him, so, but here's what I'm trying to say. Murphy's Law, if you don't know, is like, uh, if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. And all I'm going to offer to you is, what sort of God rules over that universe? Yeah? So, what are you, what are you confessing about God when you, when you speak of the world operating that way? Now, here's the thing. What Israel did, and what you and I still do, and are tempted to do, is we love to write stories of our own innocence how we're just like passive non-participants in the sin that happens, right? <laughs> even, that, even that phrasing, not my sin, not what I did, but the sin that happens, right? This thing our fathers did, and now we're, we're done for because of it. Or hope, or, and then that, what does that lead to? Again, fatalistic hopelessness. Well, guess this is how it's going to be. Sounds like Eeyore, if you're familiar. Well, guess this is where we're going, Right? But actually, in hopelessness, there's a lot of pride. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Hopelessness doesn't sound proud because it, it's just despairing. But hopelessness is really, apparently, this is what God's going to do. I'm in control, not God. I know how this is going to end. He doesn't. Right? So actually, hopelessness brings with it a kind of pride 
Now, I know that's not a very good way to comfort a hopeless person is to say you're really proud, by the way. But at the same time, I want you to recognize that hopelessness has with it an assumption that you know the future. Again, probably based on knowledge of the past and present, but what kind of God do you serve? Don't talk like an atheist. And so, how, how do we talk then? How does this, how does this take shape? In our, what, what's, our, what's our proverb that we use? I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Just kind of, this is off the top of my head, some things I offer to you to think about. One is uh, talk of personality and personality tests. Right? That's a way that we pass a lot of blame, I think. Um, so, so if somebody says, you know, faith isn't good enough for me, I need hard proof and hard evidence that God exists. Right now, I just have a very logical personality, you see. Um, and so that's the sort of thing I'm demanding. Is it doubt? No, it's not doubt. It's my logical personality. I'm not lazy. I just have a personality that's very vulnerable to procrastination and to giving up easily. Some of you are pointing fingers. Right? I'm not an angry person. It's just my heritage and where I come from. Well, you might be onto something there, but what are we, right? It's, it's because I'm, whatever, fill in the blank there, uh, that, that I have a hot temper or very passionate person. I, I often shoot off at the mouth. It's just my personality. I'm an Enneagram 37.2, right? <laughs> you know, we 37.2s, we, we just tend to tell it like it is. <laughs> or I have the personality of a rebel, and that's why I hate my parents and leaders and boss and all authorities and criticize everything without lifting a finger to help. That's just my personality. Now, let me give you a side note here. I love personality tests. I'm a big fan of them. They're fun. My problem is that we treat them like a medical diagnosis rather than what I think we should do with them is say, oh, those are the ways I'm likely to sin. Seriously, when you do the personality test, just take it and be like, oh, that's, that, that, those are the kinds of sins I'm likely to excuse. Cool. Now I'm, now I'm kind of armed against that temptation. Let me speak to something else very quickly uh, that, I've, that I've seen us use, again, not just upbringing, which is a big one, as we see here, but also different kinds of, uh, of, of diagnoses, problems of mental health, disorders of the brain that we use to explain everything. Um, and look, they can explain quite a lot. I do think we've arrived at a moment where they're used to try to explain everything that goes wrong uh, in a person's actions. Even in the church, it, it seems more and more common that our, our growing pattern is, you know, you need to repent of your sins unless, I mean, unless maybe your sins might possibly be connected to something diagnosable, then they're not really sins, and that'll remove responsibility and shame in anyone who calls you to repent. And it, it, that is a dangerous precedent to set. Now, let me be clear here. Did I say that mental illness isn't real? Did anybody just hear me say that? No. Thank you. Okay, one person didn't hear me say that. Good. The rest of you, just, no, just write it down. I'm saying, well, on one level, here's what I'm saying. If you are burdened and afflicted with a mental illness, Lord, have mercy on you. Like, I, I love you, and I'm, I'm sorry that that is the struggle you are currently bearing up under. Uh, also, still, you have sins to repent of, right? Both of those things can be true at once. Um, I'm, I'm saying that mental illness as a category to explain the actions of the great majority of everyone you ever encounter, really insufficient. And I can tell you that when, when we as a people are dealing with problems, we 
there's just a tendency to go there first. Um, because, I mean, sometimes I think it just it means less work for us. If it can get diagnosed and prescribed, then it's less work for us. I had a conversation recently with uh, a student at our school um, who, um, God love this person, you know, young as, as they are, is, is bearing up under mental illness in some really, um, some really remarkable ways, some good ways, is, is learning how to, to, to walk and to, and to bear up under it. And I asked this person, I, I said, you know, what, what is it that you wished others knew as you're, as you're walking through that? And their answer was that not everything is a mental illness. <laughs> like, like, I'm actually kind of trying to bear up under this and, and walk with it, so please, when you stay up till 3 a.m. playing video games and you show up in class the next day for the test, don't say that uh, your anxiety disorder is acting up. <laughs> like, that's what, that's what they were saying. Like, they, they say that's actually deeply insulting to categorize everything under these headings. R.C. Sproul once famously told a story about a friend of his in Florida who was a psychiatrist with a very successful therapy practice. And he invited the Reverend R.C. Sproul to come and work for him. Six figures he offered him. Big, cushy job, big, nice office. And uh, as you might know, Sproul turned the job down. Uh, and, but the guy said, uh, but, you know, but, he, but he did ask his friend, why, why are you calling me to hire me? Like, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm a theologian. I haven't been trained in psychology. Why is it you want to bring me on board to work at a uh, psychiatry practice? And the doctor replied, because after 20 years of doing this, I've realized that about 70 to 75% of my patients don't need a doctor. They need a priest. Again, you say mental illness doesn't exist. No, he didn't, I didn't. This fellow was saying that a lot of his patients were looking for a way to deal with their guilt. And so I'm saying this is not the only lens through which you should view human patterns and failures and shortcomings. I'm also saying that just like Israel, we are desperate to excuse ourselves by passing the blame. Okay? Because the more you excuse, and by the way, the more you excuse the sins of others, the more latitude in the future you create for yourself. That is the impulse that sometimes is behind our desire to excuse or ignore the sins of others because we want our sins to be excused or ignored. And so the reality is that we love to assign these identities to ourselves and tell stories about ourselves that deliver us from any guilt. And sometimes that's because repentance is hard. Healing is harder. Because healing means that I lose my right to complain. Right? I mean, if you're, if you're bearing up under a lot of suffering, sometimes, in some cases, some people can get so in love with their suffering that the prospect of healing is actually rather terrifying. Because if, 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 I'm, if I'm healed then I can't, I don't get this attention anymore. I can't complain all the time anymore. And so healing means that I, I might actually need to be seen as having the strength to help somebody else rather than spend all my energy being helped. We're terrified at the thought sometimes that God might be calling us to health, calling us to, to, to healing. That's not true of everyone. I'm saying that is true in some cases. The truth then 
Oh, let me see. Do I have time for this one? I think so. I'm going to tell you one of the most interesting things I've ever learned. It was from a brother many of you know, uh, Dr. Vincent Eskindel. He taught me one of the most interesting things I've ever learned. He gave a presentation on uh, epigenetics. And basically, what that field is demonstrating, it's neuroscience, is that habits become, uh, patterns become habits, habits become ingrained. Actually, it's not overstating it to say ingrained into your brain. So that something like grooves or tracks get formed. And, and that's no surprise, really. Okay, so yeah, you can have its patterns. But then the idea that these grooves or tracks get formed that you can then pass on to your kids. Now, at some level, not surprising. Again, we already know, for example, that the children of alcoholics are more vulnerable to alcoholism. What this is showing us, though, is that the grooves or the habits are totally replaceable. But the deeper they get with each generation that repeats them, the harder they are to break. And I will never forget when somebody spoke up and said, okay, so let's say a groove or a habit or even an addiction is deeply ingrained in a person. How long does it take to fully get it out of there? Fully get it out of there. And uh, Vincent said, well, if it's not too bad, maybe one generation. But even if it's pretty bad, at most what we've seen is it takes about three to four generations fighting against it. Once that happens, there's a lot of hope for the future. Once just one generation can get some momentum going, and then that sin pattern gets replaced, things can begin to heal. In worst cases, we're talking about three to four generations. And Steve Carter looked up and quoted the scriptures to the third and the fourth generation, which is what the the text on generational sin says. So here's the point. Don't surrender to the fatalism like Israel. Whether it's your parents or a condition that's been given to you or real, legitimate, no kidding, suffering, pain, unjust sins against you that you've had to endure. Don't give in to the fatalism. Because that is one of the most tempting things for us. And I think especially of our wider culture today as well is adopting a narrative of victimization. Now, again, could, could Israel adopt a narrative of victimization? Yes, and in fact they did, right? That's what you see. Now, were they actually victims? Well, yeah, kind of. I don't know if you remember Babylon knocking on their door and then leveling the city and killing their king. and like they, They'd suffered a lot. And then getting dragged out of their home, watching their neighbors get killed and taken to Babylon. Ezekiel's sitting by the river at the start of the book in Babylon. You want to say there's some trauma there? Probably. And God comes and says, you know, Ezekiel, none of this is their fault. You guys be... No, he says, repent. You see, everyone in this room who's old enough to have been at some point unjustly treated and remembered it, Do you have reasons to be bitter and angry and resentful and self-pitying? Of course you do. Have you been really and truly sinned against? Uh, Yeah, I would imagine so. A lot of you have. Is it your fault? No, not if you've been sinned against. For a lot of you, the, the ways that you've been sinned against really are somebody else's fault. So what then? What's God calling you to do with that? For some of you, the most terrifying prospect might be that He's calling you to heal. And that forgiveness 
and repentance from whatever this is might really terrify you. Because again, of course you've been wronged. So many of you have suffered real hardship and real heart-wrenching disappointment. And it's like somebody took your dream and set it on fire, and now all you've got are like this, this bag of ashes from all that you wanted. So what are you going to do with them? For a lot of us, the temptation is to drag our ashes around with us for the rest of our life. Everywhere we go. And whenever we talk to someone, we dunk our hands in the bag and rub it all over our face, if you'll stick with me for that metaphor. Right? Look at my ashes. Right? That's how we live, anointing our face with our pain and our misery everywhere we go. And the more familiar that prison gets, the less able you feel to leave it. Because we love to proclaim the permanence of our prisons. But here's the reality. Okay? Move to the next verse. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. So this is the goodness of the Lord. This is actually good news that he says, I'm going to stop you from speaking this way. I'm going to stop you from speaking this way. How's he going to do it, though? He doesn't just say, silence, stop talking. What does he say in verse 4? Oops, sorry. Yeah. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now again, that surprised me when I first read it. Because on one level, what is, okay, yeah, we know, the, we know the first bit. Heidelberg won for heaven's sake, right? I am not my own. Behold, all souls are mine. I belong to God, soul and body, right? We know that. What does that have to do with this? What does that have to do with stop your silly proverb? That's not how it is. Because the Lord is saying, you don't belong. This narrative you've written about how you're being assaulted for what you didn't do, that's the lie. That's part of the lie. And so, again, not that your father's sin doesn't impact, influence, shape you. That's true enough. Not that you won't struggle with where your father struggled. That's true enough. But this, this refusal to bear the guilt of your own sin, the Lord is saying, you don't get to write your own story here. Why? Because you belong to the one writing the story. You belong to the one writing the story. You don't get to write your own narrative of, of the beginning, middle, and end. You have to check it against what God has said. Now, we all do write the narrative, beginning, middle, and end. But what I'm trying to say is, do we check that against what God has said? You don't get to proclaim, brothers and sisters, what is and what will always be unless Jesus has told you so. Now, Jesus has told you some things will always be, like the steadfast love of the Lord which never ceases. But you don't get to say what other aspects of your life is and will always be. What's what, will, what can never change? What is irredeemable? What is unfixable? What is beyond healing? What is beyond help? What is beyond hope? You don't get to do that because your story doesn't belong to you. You're not the one who's writing it. And that doesn't mean that we are, it's given to us to demand what God will do. It means that we can never limit what God might do. Okay, I'm going to say that again. It doesn't mean that we demand what God will do, but it does mean that we don't limit what God might do. 
There's a great story, it's, it's probably apocryphal, of a young man in Napoleon's army who came up to Napoleon while they had just uh, conquered a bunch of land, including this island kind of off the coast of where they were. And uh, this, this, this young soldier comes up to Napoleon and he says, General, I would like that island, please, for myself. Right? And all the, all the generals start laughing and they're just like, who does this little runt like, think he is? Is he insane? And Napoleon grabs a bit of, of, of uh, paper, draws up a deed, signs it, and hands it to the young man and sends him on his way. They're all just shocked. Like, what, what were you thinking? Giving this bit of land to that young man. And Napoleon said, he honored me by the magnitude of his request. Right? He asked for something big because he knew I was the only one who could grant it. Right? And so it, is, so it is with us often in prayer. I wonder if we, if, if we might do, be better off honoring God with the magnitude of our request because he's the one writing the story. And if you read the Bible, you notice our God likes to write some crazy stories, y'all. Some crazy redemption stories. He wrote yours for heaven's sake. So I'm not saying that many of you have not had to face real hardship. Or, I mean, if we think of what the proverb from Israel, I'm not saying that some of you, hey, maybe your parents were really awful to you. Some of you have a story like that. Maybe you have been really sinned against. You've really had to suffer. What I am trying imperfectly to communicate to you this morning is that all of, all of that in terms of the, the burden of it and what it's done is going to fall away on the last day. And, and you are simply going to be you. All the stuff we inherit, right? the sins we're more prone to, because of personality, because of what we get from mom and dad, because of environment, because of our digestion, whatever. All that that we get. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls it your bad psychological material, right? Your, your psychological baggage that you're carrying. Do you know what's going to happen to it on the last day? Can you jump to that C.S. Lewis quote? So this, this quote's kind of long. This is the first part of it. I, I want you to slow walk with me through it because it, it's, I think I just want this to, to, to instruct you for the next few days as we think about these things. He said, the bad psychological material is not a sin but a disease, right? So he's ta- again, talking about all that stuff you inherit that makes certain things maybe more tempting for you than others. It doesn't need to be repented of, but to be cured. And by the way, that is very important. Keep going. Human beings judge one another by their external actions. God judges them by their moral choices. When a neurotic who has a pathological horror of cats forces himself to pick up a cat for some good reason, it is quite possible that in God's eyes, he has shown more courage than a healthy man may have shown in winning the Victoria Cross. It's a, a medal in the military, right? So this guy who's been burdened by being terrified of cats his whole life just sums up every ounce of courage he has and goes and picks up a cat and pets it. He says, there might be more courage contained in that act than a guy winning the Victoria, what we would call the Purple Heart. Go on. When a man who has been perverted from his youth and taught that cruelty is the right thing does, that should be some, does some tiny little kindness or refrains from some cruelty he might have committed and thereby perhaps risks being sneered at by his companions, he may, in God's eyes, be doing more than you and I would do if we gave up life itself for a friend. So this... You, you don't know the intensity of another person's battle and why it's so intense. 
Okay, keep going. It is as well to put it the other way around. Some of us who seem really nice people may in fact have made so little use of a good hereditary and uh, of, that is your, your genetics, good upbringing, that we are really worse than those whom we regard as fiends. So in other words, and I think this is pretty prevalent in the South, where if somebody, like somebody just calls you a sweetheart, because you're a sweetheart and you're really nice to people, and when people around you hurt and they're sad, it makes you sad, and like that's just kind of built into you, yeah? And, and somebody observing you might, if they know that you're a Christian, be like, wow, Christians are so nice. And like, I hope that we are, yeah? But it's also perfectly possible that that might just be because you were raised that way. And that you've got an advantage in that sense that, that it, what I'm trying to say is some people who are sweethearts might not be Christians. And some people who are Christians might also be sweethearts. And what Lewis is saying is that there may be things that come a lot easier to you that come a lot more difficult, uh, with a lot more difficulty to others. Go to this next one. Can we be quite certain how we should have behaved if we have been saddled with the psychological outfit, with the bad upbringing, and with the power of, say, Himmler, the Nazi? Go on. That is why Christians are told not to judge. We can see only the results which a man chooses, uh, which a man's choices make out of his raw material, but God does not judge him on the raw material, but on what he's done with it. Okay? Most of man's psychological makeup is probably due to his body. When his body dies, all that will fall off him. And the real central man, the thing that chose, that made the best or worst out of his material, will stand naked. All sorts of nice things, which we thought our own, which were really due to good digestion, (laughs) will fall off, some of us. All sorts of nasty things, which we thought were due to complexes or bad health, will fall off others. We shall then, for the first time, see everyone as he really was. There will be surprises. There will be surprises. Now, what's the point? The point is, if you don't mind me plagiarizing stuff I said last week, the the point is, your worst problem is your sin. Your second worst problem is that you don't believe that's your worst problem. Okay? Really. This This is the temptation that hits all of us. But the good news that God gives to his people in the midst of their exile is that you don't belong to yourself. You don't get to write this story. You belong to me. You are not your own. That is good news that on the last day, you will not be called to account for your parents' sins. On the last day, you will also not be credited for the many excuses you designed while you were here. You will simply be you. Just you. More you than you have ever been before. And it will just be you and Jesus. And the good news is that for those who know Jesus and belong to Him, He gives Himself to you. To that you. And He says, I died for you. And the real you is the only you that will be with Jesus forever. The real you is the same you that has been promised and given all you need to fight this fight, beloved. Indeed, to wage this war against the world and the flesh and the devil who seek to lock you into a fatalism 
that never has any hope. It's not your fault and it's never going to change. Never has any future. Never sees any possibilities. And perhaps most temptingly, never has to take any responsibility. And so what the Lord calls you to is to know Jesus who is writing a better story than that. Calls you to repent of the tendency to blame everyone but you because you don't believe that your number one problem is your number one problem. But also who invites you in to know that you belong to Him and to wait with faith for the story that He is writing. In Jesus' name, amen. So our Father, we ask that you would give us faith for this. That's what we need. Faith to believe. I pray that you would bless all of us with the, un, uh, with, with, the, with the unheard of, supernatural, super power ability to repent first before we blame and to pursue Christ um, with that confidence that we're His. With that confidence that our Lord Jesus is writing a better story and who promises better things than, than we presently speak of or, or can ask. Who knows what is, what is best for us and who is indeed working all things together for the good of those who love him. This is hard to confess when life gets hard. So Father, keep us far from the excuses of the Israelites that are so, so ready to go in our hearts, so ready to be fired off and fired out. Keep these things far from us. Give it to us to love as, uh, as you've called us to, Lord. This will only happen by the power of your Holy Spirit and your grace alone. So we ask for it now as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.